Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. Episode origin story, early 20s content creator, YouTube, and goes around all the shows. Had a great conversation with him. This is his origin story. Thanks, Ryan, and thanks, sponsors, Tops Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, CompC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So thanks, everybody. Enjoy the conversation with Ryan. And Ryan, keep up the good work. Your dad named you Ryan just out of the blue. Uh, <laughs> many only, people's man. favorite players, certainly around here in Texas. Ryan, welcome to the show. We're going to hear how you're living up to your name. Thank you for, for having me on. But yeah, so I was really lucky. I was born into a card family. Back in the 1990s, my dad actually owned an LCS. Back then, before eBay and all these other online marketplaces took over, every city had a ton of LCSs or card shops. And my dad owned a shop down in Dunning. Florida near Clearwater and Tampa Bay, where the Blue Jays have their spring training. The name was Aberdeen Double Days, based off of the founder of baseball, and collected a lot of vintage cards, but also during the era, obviously, this is junk wax. So had to do modern as well. You can't have a card shop and just focus entirely on one thing. You have to cater towards your audience. Unfortunately, when the junk wax era started declining, he had to sell all of his stuff and get out of the business. It was unfortunate because he picked up quite a over time, talk about some like super scarce blank back cards. One of the cards he always told me about is a mint condition 1955 Sandy Koufax, the one card he wished he didn't get rid of that. And then the Andy Pafko number one from 1952 tops, two iconic cards that he swears were mint shape. His biggest regret was not keeping those cards when he sold off everything. I'm sure he had a ton of other great cards as well, but completely left the hobby at that time, focused on his job, family, and was gone. When I was born, I was an excuse for him to get back into the hobby. As soon as I was born, all I know I was going to flea markets, I was going to card shows, and my dad really got back into collecting. Obviously, when I'm really young, I don't really know much about cards. What I did is I used to go to the value boxes and I would look for cards that were numbered. So like your Topps Gold Parallels, I'd go through the 10 cent boxes, digging through them, looking for those numbered cards and putting off the side. Now, my dad knew those were worthless cards on some of those players. He's like, man, this is like, a backup player. Are you sure you want that gold parallel? Yes. It's a numbered card. I want it. But it was like a really fun thing for me to do is go through those value boxes while my dad would go through $10 boxes at a flea market, Oldsmar. Uh, there's a guy there and then Mike, that was our number one guy we always went to as a kid there. But I'd go through that. He would go through the other cards, buy a few, one or two like bigger vintage cards, maybe a $20 card or a $30 card and had fun with it. A good way for us to bond. This is a way to get into the hobby. But all those years between that going to a few card shows in a mall. There was something called the Big Top Flea Market in Tampa. I grew a passion for the hobby during that. Eventually, as I got older, I ended up reading a lot of the Beckett magazines before going to the shows. I would read it, figure out what cards got up, and then would go through those bargain bins and look for those cards that someone didn't know that they had in there and try to grab those cards and find a little bit of a difference, focusing on that as well. All I'm hearing is the buy side. Were you mainly interested in buying, acquiring, or were you transacting, trading, selling as you went? Because a lot of these shows have kids running around buying and selling. Were you just buying? I was just buying. Funny enough, I wasn't selling cards at all until I got into creating content. Because for me, I would buy cards. This is cool. And I'd put it away. And that's about it. As soon as I started building out content and traveling around shows, my whole philosophy changed, especially like seeing all the different cultures going into the hobby the last few years. So I was doing that through high school and then college hit. I was still obviously into cards for a bit, but I was mostly buying online. I wasn't going to card shows as much. Luckily in my night runners club in college, I was a runner towards the last few years, try to get in shape. And I had a friend in the runners 
that actually collected cards. I was down in Miami running a marathon with them and we're out to dinner one night and I was bidding on a few cards on eBay. He's like, no way you're bidding on cards. I collected cards as a kid. I like basketball cards. You like vintage baseballs. Yeah. And that was my good friend, Steven. And we bonded over that. A few months later, I graduated from college with electrical engineering degree. And now I had a little bit more free time to pick up another hobby. The previous year, I remember going to the national and after the national, I was watching some card show vlogs that people actually went to card shows and recorded. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever because I had a ton of fun at the national the first time in 19. It was nothing like the local shows I went to at the flea markets or the malls. This was like a whole experience. But at this time in 2020, the hobby starting to boom. And I thought it'd be cool to build out a YouTube channel with my friend where we would hit up the local Florida card shows and document it and have fun, like picking up some cards and learn across the way. So we did that zero intention to go travel, zero intention to do much else besides card shows, and then educate people on some vintage cards or other sets that they might know. And one day at Orlando card show, one of the dealers was talking to us is, Hey, I know you're doing all these vlogs right now. Did you hear that Dallas is going to have a big show? It's going to be like the national for 2020. At that time, I knew there was big card shows in Chantilly and Philly just from talking to the few vintage dealers, but I had no idea there's a big show in Dallas. I had no idea how many card shows there was around the United States at that time besides a few large ones. And I was intrigued. I was like, no way. How many tables? Everyone was like, oh, it's four or 500 tables. I thought they were crazy. I was like, there's no way Dallas is going to have it. I was on the fence, but I found a Spirit Airline flight for like 70 bucks. I was like, all right, it's a $70 gamble plus like a $100 hotel. I get to split the hotel with Steven. So it's not gonna be too expensive to go there and try it out. Let's have some fun. The only show before the out-of-state was the national. So ended up going to Dallas. We recorded a vlog there and that vlog took off compared to all the other Florida card shows. And I was like, all right, we got to go back to Dallas again. Plus at the show, all brand new dealers. I got to try some local foods as well. Really great Mexican food, great barbecue. I was like, this is fun traveling, going to a show. And Dallas had another show every two or three months. And I was like, all right, I got to go back to Dallas again. Again, no intentions going anywhere else. Just Florida shows, Dallas show. Did Dallas again. The video did well. And then someone told us about a card show in Wisconsin Dells. And I've never been to Wisconsin at all. I was like, you know what? This is going to be a fun experience. I went up there for the show and man, I had a blast. There's so many vintage cards. There's so many dealers that I had no idea out there. People there were like, oh, I watch your YouTube videos. This is really cool. There's no way. The first time I've ever stepped in the state, that someone watched a YouTube video or recognized like going to Dallas or going to the Florida shows, be able to meet people and talk about vintage cards, have fun with it. And even at that show, I picked up a card, which I didn't think was attainable. They Jim Brown rookie card. I ended up trading into it from going to a bunch of different card shows. And that's a story in itself because I ended up getting the Jim Brown from just trading up from a Carmen Electra refractor at a card show. <laughs> well, <you laughs> know, is- basically, if you're going to that many shows and really making the circuit. It's like back in the day when I was so active, you just see stuff and you can tell from one show to the next and you could figure out which dealers are reasonably priced and, and want to be accommodating and all that stuff. And nine out of 10 dealers are really, maybe more than nine out of 10 are really pretty good. You build those connections with those dealers. And I know a lot of people obviously want to haggle with some dealers, but some dealers are like, look, I know you, here's X percentage off of whatever cards you want. Go around, buy some stuff. I'll have some fun with it. I make some money, you make some money with it. And that's the beauty of it. Like just building the connections, getting to know these people is, and also going to the shows, you can find some really cool stuff that you can't find online. For example, I picked up a bird by the other day and it was a blank back. Like you just don't find blank backs. Even with like my dad's card shop, he collected blank back cards because they're so scarce. Good luck finding that. If you're going to put on save searches 
on a marketplace. It might take you years. That's the power of the visual being there. This has always been a tangible hobby of you see it, you feel it, you touch it, you buy it, <laughs> you take it home. Maybe you slab it, but you have it. And that's not true of every aspect of the hobby now, but it's the roots of how how we got going. But it's really cool to go to a lot of shows. I agree. And so I think a lot of people are watching. You think they're jealous of you that you're able to go to all these shows and you're vicariously showing them what they're missing. Because some of the, the Wisconsin Dells in Dallas, before you were aware of it, it wasn't that big a show. And then in 2020, it started really taking off, which is, I think, when you kicked in. Yeah, there might be some people that are jealous on that side of things, but it's a lot of work. I think traveling is easy, man. I have to leave to the airport sometimes at 3 a.m. and I get back at 12 or 1 o'clock at night, plus all the editing on it, plus walking around, traveling to and from the airport. It's it's a lot of work. Plus, I work a full-time job as well. So you so put Steve, in those- Steven goes to or or what? Yeah. So Steven goes to a lot of the shows. He doesn't go to all of them. Who does still... your, are you videoing your own? I mean, you iPhone video or you got a nicer camera or what are you doing? Yeah. So I have a Sony camera that I'm using right now and I use that. I have a gimbal as well and a mic and what is I'll vlog it myself. I'll get all the B-roll as well. And I used to edit my videos fully, but now I work with the editor to take off some of the stress on getting that done because last year until I could afford to get an editor, I was working until 12 o'clock in the morning every single day to try to get these videos out. And it just wasn't healthy because I skipped running, which was a big passion of mine. And I gained quite a few pounds not being able to do that. So I decided I need to hire an editor, work with them side by side, but able to at least save me a few hours every week. Okay, Ryan. So if I'm doing a 15 minute audio podcast, I figure it could take me an hour to do some research, to record it, to edit it, to you know post-production, all that stuff. That's audio. Video has to be a lot worse than that. So what do you estimate for per minute of video? Is it 10 to one or what would you say? It's tough because some parts of the card show vlogs, which I have are very like second cuts. So being able to sync those up, add in transitions, add in sound effects, it takes a lot of work, but then you have other parts, which is like sometimes a negotiation or just talking about what happens at the show. And if you do it in one take, you really don't have to do much except for mixing the audio levels. So there's parts like as crazy as it sounds, sometimes one minute on the video or two minutes in a video will take 50% of the edit time. Versus the other eight or nine minutes, just because of how many clips and the frequency of them, then finding the audio tracks to sync with it. Like the B roll montages that I throw in the hard show vlogs are the hardest part. But once those are done, everything else is pretty easy. I'm an 80 20 rule guy. I think you do about 80% of it. And that last 20% takes 80% of the time. But that first 80% that gets it up to pretty decent, you can knock that out pretty quick. Are, are you more perfectionistic than I am? No, I think you're spot on with that 80-20 principle because that, that montage clip probably takes about 80% of the time, 20% everything else. Another thing that people don't realize it takes a lot of time with the card show vlogs is organizing all the clips because after a show, I might have 250 to 350 clips on average. Then you have to figure out the sequence of the clips because when you're building out a vlog, you don't want to just have it interview, pick up, pick up. Like when you're out there at a show recording, it makes sense to do that just because you're in a mindset. Okay, I'm gonna interview this dealer. I'm gonna interview this dealer. I'm gonna shoot all my B-roll shots there. But you really wanna figure out what goes where. And since you're having so many clips, you wanna figure out what clips are usable, what clips aren't usable. So being able to go through all that, put them in the right folders, organize it all, that does take some time, sometimes a few hours alone. You're a smart guy for your electrical engineering, but was your minor in broadcast film? <laughs> no, I self-taught myself with all that. So 
I did electrical engineering and right now I'm actually a data analyst. So I taught myself SQL programming and I decided to pursue that instead. How are you pursuing that? Is it clearly your main thing? In 10 years, are you going to be moving up the corporate ladder or are you going to be doing more hobby stuff? I think I'm going to do a mixture, to be honest with you, because I think there's a good balance of keeping the day job as a data analyst. And there's also the good balance of doing this right now. I do miss Fridays and Thursdays at cartridges. Like Dallas always starts on a Thursday and you miss a ton of deals on the floor. But right now I look at it as like, I can do well on the corporate side of things. I can continue to learn new skill sets and maybe one day apply those to the sports cards. I have a data sports card channel, which is Moneyball, which I apply advanced right. like stats to baseball right now and look at the card prices as well. Try to educate people rather than say, oh, this player, I think is going to go up 200% this year because I think this player is good. Like applying actual numbers to it, which I think is helpful, but I do having that during the day and then on the weekends traveling because it's a, like, it's a nice break doing that. I agree. It's an industry, but it's also a hobby. It ought to be fun. And yeah, if, and if you turn if, it into a job and an industry, it and a paycheck, even if it's a bigger paycheck, it still doesn't feel as good as when you're free to enjoy and go where you want to go. But Absolutely. My thing with it too, is if you turn it into a job, then you have to look at it every single week. You have to move X amount of inventory or make X amount on YouTube or do whatever else to be able to feed your family or be able to live life. And that becomes stressful because if you're trying to build a PC, you don't want to sell all your cards. There's a lot of stuff that you want to keep. And even I have that dilemma right now going to card shows. Sometimes I'll spend a thousand dollars at a card show and I know I only can keep 300 or $400 worth of those cards. I have to sell some other stuff and there's cards. I wish I could keep them, but I had to sell them to be able to buy more cards or to fund the next card show vlog. And there's that balance of that because you have to have your money from your normal job. Plus you have to have some money from the card shows to be able to fund the next show. If you focus 100% on the hobby, you have to sell all your inventory. You can't keep it. It's hard being a dealer and also a collector. That's not my situation now, but it, it probably was similar to that back when I was your age. You have to sell in order to free up funds. Otherwise, cards cost money. Even when they were cheaper, it still added up. The man in the-